just a moment. Toby will be preaching to us from Psalm 51. So if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 51 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a pew Bible in front of you in the rack, and it's on page 474 that you'll find Psalm 51. <clears throat> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices are God of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, as we come to you this morning, we're reminded by your word that you alone can forgive us of our sin, that you alone can create a clean heart in us and establish us in your ways. We thank you, Father, that through your word, through the death of Christ on the cross, we have hope in you and in you only. We pray that you would be with Pastor Toby now as he brings the message that truth would be applied in our hearts and that would be, we would be obedient to obey it. So in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. <clears throat> it's springtime, and the sun is beginning to make its descent in the western sky, a time that can get quite sticky and stuffy in homes in the Near East, 
a time when people escape that to try and catch some cool breezes on the flat roofs of their home. And among those on their roof this day is one of the most well-known men in human history, King David. He should be leading his troops, but instead he's lounging. And from his commanding view of the city, David spies a woman, a beautiful woman, bathing on her rooftop. David's interested. He inquires about her and learns that she is, one of, she is the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah. But that's no obstacle. Kings take what they want. And so David will take Bathsheba. Together they commit adultery, and in time, Bathsheba shows up on his doorstep She's pregnant. Exposure of David's sin is imminent, and so David scrambles to cover it up. He brings Uriah home from the battleground to have him spend time with his wife, so Uriah will think it's his baby. But Uriah won't do that. He wouldn't dare even take a brief break from his wartime mindset, not while his brothers-in-arms are still out there. But David is determined. His sin must remain hidden. He gets Uriah drunk, hoping this will reduce his resolve and take him home to Bathsheba. But it doesn't. And so the king feels he has no choice. He conspires in such a way to have Uriah abandoned in battle, left to die. Uriah the very man who wouldn't sleep in his own bed out of a sense of loyalty to the army and to the king will now be deserted by order of the king and all to cover up David's sin. Once Uriah dies, David thinks he has what he wants. He takes Uriah's widow to be his wife. But the sin that David has so desperately tried to cover up to this point, God will bring to the light by sending a prophet. So Nathan goes, confronts David, exposes his sin, and right then and there, David is cut to the heart and he repents. And having repented, he receives mercy. The Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. Now, there's more to the story, but it's quite something. It illustrates well Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, a life of hiding our sin from friends, from family, even trying to fool ourselves, gets us nowhere. We will only find mercy if we confess and forsake our sin, if we repent. And that is where Psalm 51 helps us. It is a psalm for sinners. 
I told a man at an open house just recently, he asked me what I was preaching this morning. I told him Psalm 51. He said, I'm trying to appeal to as wide an audience as possible, so I'm preaching to sinners. I figure that covers everybody. But that's what this is. We talk in church circles about the sinner's prayer, and Psalm 51 is the sinner's prayer high and above all other sinner's prayers. Uh, in fact, uh, when, Spurgeon, uh, when Charles Spurgeon taught, wrote about in his, the introduction to, his, to this psalm in the Treasury of David, he basically said that this psalm is one you can drink in and meditate on and exhale out and have new devotion, but anyone who tries to explain it will come to the end and find that he's failed. So, I'm already ready, all right? But we are going to think about this psalm, this sinner's prayer, this psalm for sinners. It's David's prayer of repentance, his plea for God's great mercy in the light of David's great sin. It's an example to us. And it teaches us that repentant sinners seek mercy from God. Repentant sinners seek mercy from God. Of course, repentance leads us to do other things, doesn't it? Seek forgiveness from those that we have sinned against. Make restitution where uh, appropriate. Put off sinful thoughts and words and and actions and replace them with righteous ones. But repentance begins here. It begins with God. Because if, if it doesn't begin with God, it's not repentance. Because repentance, you see, is a change in our mind, a change in how we think about sin, how we think about ourselves, how we think about God. Repentance is a total reversal in our way of thinking that results in a total reversal in our way of living. It's not merely a reformation of behavior. It is a reorientation of all of life. Martin Luther said that the Christian life is essentially one of continual repentance because we continue to sin. And it is those who would not recognize that that our friend the Apostle John would come up and pat us on the back and say, Brother, you're lying. Repentance is for the non-Christian who is coming to Christ, and repentance is for the Christian who is walking with Christ. So Psalm 51 is for everyone. And what David knows that we see here as a repentant man is what we must know to repent and to enjoy and seek mercy from God. The first thing we see here is that we must know that we need mercy. Now that seems pretty just right off the top. That just bounces right off the text, doesn't it? We must know that we need mercy. He begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. In light of the episode with Bathsheba and with Uriah and all the conspiracy, which is what the title of the hymn, t the, the, the psalm tells us, uh, he's responding to. In light of that, what he knows is that he needs mercy. So he prays for it. I mean, it is that simple, and then again, it's not. Because you see, apart from God's grace and repentance, we don't see this very clearly. Sin, sin is, um, we're still pre-lunch, 
Sin is a bit like scabies. Do you know what scabies are? Those little bugs that burrow their way under the skin and they lay, he- lay eggs and it's really gross. But sin is like that. Sin doesn't just stay at the surface. Sin wants to burrow down deep and make its home and lay eggs of deceptive thoughts in your mind. Where you will think and I will think in our sin we need anything and everything but to seek God for mercy. You see, we could wrongly be convinced that what we need is anonymity. Like David, who, who conspired to, to hide his sin in a great web of conspiracy. How far have people gone in order to cover up their sin? Some may be in this room right now and you have everyone fooled in your life. You have everyone thinking because you know how to use the language about I'm a sinner and you know how to you know how to do all that you know how to put on all the things you need to put on so that you re- remain anonymous well, we're going to talk about theology we're going to talk about let's talk about missions let's talk about uh, programming let's talk about politics let's talk about anything and everything but what's actually corrupting my soul We, need, we come to think we need anonymity. Or we come to think we need leniency. I mean, it's just a vice. Everybody has vices, right? David just had a predisposition to sexual immorality. I mean, cut him a break. We can be so deceived by sin that we actually call a relaxed view of sin grace. As if leniency is grace. As if not not holding to the morality the Bible lays out that that's what grace is, and it is not. We may come to think we need balance. Well, I've sinned. I need to counterbalance that with extra devotion. I'm going to double my prayer time because of that. I'm going to sink myself deeply into reading and into praying and, in, and, and into uh, church attendance and into I'm going to volunteer for everything for Discovery Camp. Now you should volunteer for something for Discovery Camp. Sometimes children will when they get in trouble some children try to make up for it like they're going to be extra good now I'm going to do extra chores I'm going to I'm going to use all my manners now I'm going to do all that. It's as if the soul is looking to God and saying Let me make it up to you. We may be so deceived that what often happens is we feel we need someone to blame. This is what we really need. We need someone to throw under the bus. Adultery blamed on some deficiency in my spouse. A child blaming their rebellion on strict parents. Speeding tickets blamed on ridiculously low speed limits. Slander in the break room at work blamed on a harsh boss. I mean, the list could go on, but I'll just give you one more, which is probably the biggest one, is that we, 
We can be so deceived by sin that we feel like we just we need a God of our own making. That rather than turn to God for what we need, we turn God into what we want, which is a God who doesn't punish, who looks the other way, who just wants us to chart our own course, choose our own lifestyle, and just, just, be, just be happy with who you are. The lies could just go on and on, couldn't they? Looking anywhere and everywhere but the one place that the soul needs most. In fact, in refusing to repent, in not seeking mercy, um, we can begin to see effects on our physical body. Did you know that? Listen to Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. A general malaise, weakness, pain, fatigue, pervasive sadness, burning in his sides. The modern diagnostician has a number of answers here. But the Bible says, sin. Physiological things can produce some of that too, can it? A lot of it, maybe even all of it. But here David says, it's because of my sin, because of my foolishness, because of your indignation, because of the tumult in my heart. And the only answer will be repentance, which he does in verse 18, just so you know. We won't read all the way to there, but he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. We know, we must know that we need mercy. The repentant person knows that that is what they truly need. Verse 1, again, mercy from God. Have mercy on me, O God, Elohim, the judge, the powerful judge who could rightly condemn us. We know that we must seek mercy from God. We must seek mercy according to His steadfast love. That's the next phrase. His chesed, His covenant faithfulness to us. Our sin is the height of unfaithfulness. So we don't go to God and say, have mercy based on how good I've been. We go to God and say, have mercy based on how good you are. Your steadfast love your faithfulness according to His abundant mercy. This is compassion. This is the burning in Joseph's chest when he sees his brothers. He has compassion on them. I mean, we have been, to, to, use, to use the imagery of, of, of the Good Samaritan, we have been beat up and left for dead by sin. And we need God to cross the chasm to us 
and bind our wounds with the balm of His mercy. That's what a repentant person knows. A repentant person knows we must know that we need God's mercy. Secondly, we don't just need to know that we need God's mercy. We must know why we need God's mercy. We need mercy because of our sin. I mean, here in this psalm, David uses a multi, gives us a multicolor picture of sin using different words. He speaks of transgression in verses 1 and 3. This is a clear violation of the law. It is trespassing. It is seeing the no trespassing sign and going and climbing the fence anyway. He speaks of iniquity in verses 2 and 5 and 9, which points to our depravity. You see, transgression speaks to our sinful choices, where iniquity speaks of our sinful nature, the fountain out of which the poisonous river of sin runs. And then he speaks of sin, missing the mark, verses 2, 5, and 9, missing the mark in thought, in speech, in action. We miss the mark of God's glorious standard, what He has put forward in His law, but there's something else. Sin actually misses its own mark because what is it that sin is seeking to do? Satisfy us with anything but God. It will aim to satisfy us in a whole myriad of ways, but sin misses that mark because sin cannot satisfy. My people have committed two great evils, says the Lord. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. The first day I was a youth pastor at Sunnycrest Baptist Church was on a mission trip, and I arrived learning that I was supposed to lead the trip, even though I hadn't planned the trip. So I was always, you know how quarterbacks like get the call from the sideline, what the play is? That was me the whole week. I was like looking to the guy who planned it, saying, what do we do next? All right, this is what we're going to do, right? And we get in the huddle, and I would tell him, this is what we're going to do next. First, you know, one of the first nights that we're there, we're right there in Panama City. We go down to the Gulf of Mexico. I say, everybody go out into the ocean. I want you to scoop up as much water as you possibly can and bring it back to me. And so they go out and they scoop up as much water as their hands can possibly hold and they come back. And it was actually just for me to tell them that the God that we serve and the God that was going to use them that week as they shared the gospel with children and with random strangers as we knocked on their doors, as we went street witnessing, as we did those kinds of things, that the God who that we're looking to to work can hold all of the water in the palm of His hand. But that is also a picture of what we think. We go down to the salt water thinking this will refresh our soul. And not only does salt water not refresh our soul, there's just not enough of it by the time we try to get it into our hands. We, we, we just create broken cisterns for ourselves, thinking that if I just have that, if I just have that, if I could just do that, if I could just exchange this wife for a different one, if I could just exchange this job for a different one, if I could just exchange this boss for a different one, if I could just vent my anger at whoever else and just get control any way necessary. 
If I could just have that substance, it'll get me through. And it's all a broken cistern. Sin misses its own mark. It cannot satisfy. And David has a deep and abiding awareness of his sin. Look at verse 30 and verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In verse 3, he knows his sin. He cannot escape it. It is right there in front of him. It's not like those virtual reality masks, right, that people put on those virtual reality goggles that give you a different reality to look at. His sin is reality, reality goggles, and they are right in front of him. There's no virtual reality to it. It is reality. And everywhere he turns his head, all he can see is his sin. It is right in front of him. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And a hand goes up in the back of the classroom, doesn't it? What do you mean against you, you only have I sinned? What? Have you forgotten Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, the army, the whole nation? What about them, David? Well, David's not saying that this doesn't matter. He's simply recognizing that all sin is primarily against God. Dear friend, even that which you sin against another person is first a sin against God who defines how you ought to have treated that other person. We don't even understand what sin is unless God defines it for us. Not only that, he's also echoing what Nathan asked him in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan asked, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, somebody want to knock on Nathan's door? Nathan, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about Joab? What about the army? What about the nation? Why aren't you there asking him, how could you do that to those people? Because Nathan is there on behalf of the Lord to reconcile David first and foremost to the one to whom he must be reconciled. God. So he doesn't say, why have you done this thing and sinned against all these people? He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? So David prays, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He got the message loud and clear. His sin is against God. And in verse 5, he goes on to say he's not going to blame anybody else. I mean, his sin is rooted in his sinful nature. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Do you notice the contrast between the beginning of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6? Both beginning with behold. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, but you, God, behold, you delight in truth in the inner being. There is no greater distance than between sinful man and a holy God. He is, he, his sin, our sin, makes, puts us in sharp contrast 
with a holy God. There is none like Him. None like Him. David is essentially saying life begins at conception and with it, sin. Sin. He doesn't just see it, he sees it for what it is. Now I'm just going to list these, but as you work through this, as you have read this beforehand, or you're going to read through this maybe later this afternoon and reflect on the text, which I encourage you to do, you'll see this. Because of what he asks and because of what he says, we can conclude this. Sin makes his soul filthy. It robs him of his joy. It makes his spirit all wrong within him. It distances him from God. He had seen, he was there when God took his spirit from Saul. And he's trembling in verse 11 that it's going to happen to him. Sin makes him guilty before God. Sin keeps him from praising God as he deserves. That's why he says, Lord, open my lips so that I can praise you. I mean, in short, sin, verse 4, is evil. It is vile. It is wretched. We are so concerned to categorize sins in those which are less, less bad and more bad and all of these things that we don't, we don't understand that any and all sin is cosmic treason against God who is the creator and ruler of the universe and His universe is to operate in His way and we are in direct violation of that. You ask Zach Tyra when he goes, you know, when he goes down to flight school, which of these little orders can I just disobey? You guys who are in the military, isn't that what you did? You decided which orders were important and, and, and you ladies, you know, which ones weren't so important? No. How much more does God deserve honor and obedience? David needs mercy. And he knows why he needs mercy. Because of his sin. I wonder, can you say with David, my sin is ever before me? When you're in conflict... How likely are you to suspect yourself of sin first? How likely are you to inspect your own words and actions and motives first? How eager are you to see the log that's in your own eye? I mean, we can be quite adept at seeing the sin of others, can't we, while we are quite blind to our own? We can maximize the smallest of sins in others while minimizing the greatest of them in ourselves. We can assume bad motives in others, motives that we can't actually know while excusing our bad motives, which we know very well. We can wag our head with great vigor at the sins of others and nod our head in gentle understanding at our own. Dear friend, we must stop looking through the window of self-righteousness at the sins of others and rather look in the mirror of self-examination at our own. 
If we are going to find mercy, we must know that we need mercy, and we must know why we need mercy to cry out with the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, even though I'm not as bad as other people. No. A sinner. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to a friend, wrote that the Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to his inner cesspool. Third thing we must know is we must know what God's mercy brings. We must know that we need God's mercy. We must know why we need God's mercy. We must know what God's mercy brings. David essentially shows us two great blessings in this psalm. The first is forgiveness. Forgiveness comes when God gives mercy. Now, forgiveness is not mentioned. It's more like we're taken on a tour of three rooms to show us the forgiveness that God mercifully gives. The first room is the classroom. And in the classroom, David says, yeah, did you ever have to write sentences on the board when you were a kid? Are you going to admit it? Are you going to admit that you had to go to the board and write sentences after class? All right. I don't know if they still do that. I mean, they use whiteboard. You have to text it to your teacher. You know, you have to text a hundred times without using copy and paste. I will not flick that girl's ear anymore. You know, all these types of things. I had an Algebra 2 teacher who she had the, uh, the over, overhead projector. If you don't know what that is, Google it. But she... There was the roll of the clear plastic, right? And so she would roll to a new place, but she refused. She hated the idea of buying new clear plastic. So she would write it all, and she had the cleaner right next to her. But she would just lick her thumb, and (laughs) it was great. You didn't want to touch that teacher by the end of the day, right? But to blot out in verse 1 and to blot out in verse 9 means to erase it completely. It's something, it's, it's a wiping out. It's taking it away as if it was never there. Forgiveness. And from the courtroom, we go to the laundry room. He says, wash me, in verse 2, wash me. Verse 7, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's a word normally used for washing clothes, for getting stains out so that we are whiter than snow. It is as the prophet Isaiah said in speaking for the Lord, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, yet you shall be as white as snow. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. Lord, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Forgiveness. From the classroom to the laundry room to the sanctuary. Cleanse me, verse 2. Purge me with hyssop, verse 7. Both speak of ritual purity in the law 
priests use bunches of hyssop to sprinkle blood on one who's unclean, or they're unclean because of leprosy, or they touched the dead, or, or, and it's in Leviticus and in Numbers. But this was to cleanse them so that they could re-enter the community of faith. They could re-engage in the right worship of God. They, you could not come unclean into God's presence and have all of the benefits of worshiping the Lord. You couldn't be in the community. The only way to get back in was to be cleansed. And so God forgives in that same way. Cleanses. Purge me with hyssop. Make me clean so that I can re-engage in right worship. Be among your people. Repentant sinners seek mercy from God, and one of the blessings of that is forgiveness, where God clears our name and cleans us up and makes us suitable for His presence with His people. The second great blessing is renewal. When I'm stained with guilt and sin, He is there to lift me, heal me, and forgive me. This would go with the heal me part. This renewal. First, he wants renewal in his own life. Listen to verse 8 and then 10 to 12. Uh, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This renewal will only come, verse 9, if God hides His face. You see, the hiding of the face, God will either hide His face from our sins and forgiveness, or He will hide His face from us in punishment. He will either blot out permanently our sin from His book, or He will blot our names out of His book. That's what it actually says in Exodus 32, 33. Whoever sins... I will blot out of my book. And David wants renewal. Now listen, if we try to press this language too hard, if we try to make David a lecturer in systematic theology rather than a poet, we are going to go wrong in so many ways. What David is saying is that through sin, he has forfeited something of his relationship with God. It's gone cold. Do you know that? Do you know that by experience? Do you know when you don't respond to sin the way that God tells us to respond to sin? You will know yourself to be at greater distance with God even though you can quote your justification verses. Isn't it quite the oxymoron in your soul? to know you're justified and to feel so far away. It's like a married couple who's in conflict and they're standing in the same room at the same sink doing the same dishes and yet they are light years apart. They're still covenantly committed to one another but they sure aren't living according to that commitment in that moment. Dear friend, God will not let His children wander into what will hurt and kill them without doing something about it. 
And in part, that first ticker is often, man, I just, I just feel empty, distant. Like I'm not as close to God as I want to be. If you start to sense that, the first thing you should do is not examine your, your daily quiet time ritual. The reason why is because there's no daily quiet time ritual given to us in the Bible. But there is a sense in which my sin distances me. I am out of not His eternal favor, but I'm walking out of fellowship with God by just keeping on this path. And David wants renewal. That will come when God acts. And if he, he wants a clean heart, he wants, I want my joy back. Make my spirit right again. Don't cast me out like you did Saul. Make me eager to live for you. Renew me, God. And the reason he's going to God is because God must do it. In verse 10, that first word, create, you know where else that word is used? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word, create. The same way in which God spoke everything out of nothing, He is going to have to do that kind of radical, merciful work in us. He wants to be renewed in His service. Verses 13 and 14, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I mean, there's something about knowing the mercy of God that makes you want to see others receive it as well. I mean, how can you possibly keep that to yourself? Right? David wants to testify of God's merciful way with sinners, of His righteousness. He wants to teach sinners just like him who can turn back to God and find mercy. Listen, one of the things that we talked about just a couple of months ago and we want to keep on the forefront of our mind is that our desire is not simply to focus on the ends of the world with the gospel. Though we are thankful for all of our mission partners around the world, we are thankful that we are taking the gospel to South Africa into places uh, where some of you may not have even known Zulu was a language before Sunday school, all right? But listen... Not only are we concerned to take the gospel to the ends of the world, we must be and take responsibility for taking the gospel to the end of the street. To your neighbors, to my neighbors, to your work colleagues, to, our rec to the other parents at the recreational fields, to the stranger who for no apparent reason, apart from God's goodness, happens to open up about their life while you're standing next to them in the grocery store. Do you know one of the fastest ways to burn out in doing that is to forget how good the mercy of God is. You will burn out. We have to continually drink of the sweetness of the gospel if we are going to be reminded that our thirsty neighbors need it. Which means, in a setting like this, when you start to hear it, I mean, because every... every preacher has tendencies, and you kind of know like when the, when the cross is like on the horizon, right? I mean, you can see it coming. Rather than shutting off your mind and thinking, or looking around thinking, well, 
Who needs to hear this today? What we need to do is open up our minds and open up our mouths and open up our hearts and just gobble it again for ourselves. He wants to, he's, God's mercy brings renewal in his life, in his service, and quite frankly, God's mercy brings renewal in glorifying God. Verses 15 to 19. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. You see that renewal? Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David sees religious activity exactly as God does. Unless it's sincere, it's useless. In fact, just go read Isaiah 1 and, 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 and see what God thinks about vain offerings. Just make that your homework on top of reflecting on this psalm. God has no use for sacrifices offered by hands whose hearts are far from Him. But He delights in the sacrifices of those who are broken and contrite in heart. This is not about whether sacrifice would be made. This is about the heart of the one who would bring it. That's why the end of the psalm isn't, well, then the sacrifices don't matter anymore because it's all internal anyway. There's still a sacrifice needed. You know, a horse is said to be broken when it finally gives up its rebellious kicking and tugging and pulling away and running away, and it finally yields to its master. And such is the case for us in our sin. This is what brokenness looks like. We stop kicking against the goads. We stop pulling away from God. We stop removing ourselves from conviction. And we just say, I give up. I'll do whatever you say. I will repent in dust and ashes. I will obey you. That's what a broken spirit does. And no other spirit is pleasing to the Lord. He says as such in Isaiah 66, this is the one I look to, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. So that when we are broken, our songs are actually sincere. Our prayers are honest. Our giving is genuine. Preaching and teaching and listening are authentic. And our obedience comes from the heart. And God is glorified. Forgiveness and renewal. Look again at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. You know, one of the greatest ways that David teaches sinners God's way, even today, is the fact that he wrote down this psalm. You ever think about that? He wrote it down. And Israel would begin to sing it together, to confess their sin together before the Lord, to seek mercy together as repentant sinners, and they would sing it 
year after year, decade after decade, century after century, until a millennia later, Jesus would take this song on his lips. But he would take it as a psalm prophesying and not so much a psalm crying out from a sinner's heart. Because our Lord was without sin. He didn't sing this as one who needs mercy. He sang it as one who would give the mercy that it speaks of. He wouldn't sing it as a sinner in need of a Savior, but as a Savior who is the friend of sinners. He wouldn't sing it as one under the curse of sin in need of blessing. He would sing it as the blessed Son of God who becomes a curse for us so that we might receive forgiveness and renewal. This is a personal and prophetic song for Jesus. He's the one who will do good to God's people. He's the one. He's the sacrifice in which God delights. He's the right sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus paid it all. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, repentant sinners seek mercy from God, and they find it. That's the good news of the gospel. Repentant sinners seek mercy from God, and they find it. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know that you need God's mercy? Do you understand why you need God's mercy? Do you understand the blessings that it will bring? And do you understand that if in repentance you seek mercy from God, if you cry out with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he will give it. And if you are a Christian, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, is there some sin that you're hiding? That you're lying and conspiring to cover like David did. Dear friend, you are forfeiting sweet fellowship with God and you are eroding any assurance you might have that you belong to God. You are distancing yourself from genuine fellowship with other Christians and the call to you would be to repent. Confess your sin to God. Seek Him. And if you've been hiding, it would be best to find a friend to whom you can confess as well. That they might hold you accountable that they might encourage you, that they might be God's agent in keeping you from hiding in the future. Either way, repentant sinners seek mercy from God, and they find it. Have you found it? You can find it today. By God's grace, you can find it today. a brief moment of reflection and then let's pray. Have mercy on us, O God according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. 
Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, we were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Behold, you delight in truth in the inner being, and you teach me, teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver us from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of our salvation, and our tongues will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open our lips, and our mouths will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. Your sacrifices are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you won't despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you delight in right sacrifices, in the right sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom the sacrificial system finds its end who has made a once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin, satisfying your wrath, forgiving our sin, giving us eternal life. May this prayer be our prayer this day and in the days of our lives. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.